Hello and welcome to Stump Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary, and today I'm doing my Movember 2023 wrap up. It's November 30th, so end of the month. Look at my fundraiser. Do some thanks to my 23 donors, which of course includes me. And uh, look at our take, giving thanks, talk about Caritas, and giving some encouragement to everybody else to go forth and spread that Caritas into the world for the rest of this year and, you know, in our lives to come. So first, for my Movember 2023, we had Giving Tuesday this week, and I wrapped that up. It looks like my take for this year, and yes, I'll keep the links for the fundraiser up. It'll be open. I'm pretty sure Movember will keep taking donations, even if like my official links may or may not work. Um, uh, but it looks like he brought in this year donations of $1,744.1744. That sounds like a year. So I looked up on Wikipedia. What happened that year? Uh, evidently, there was the Great Comet of 1744. That sounded interesting. Uh, known for having this fan of t six tails uh, that was prominent in the sky. Evidently, Catherine the Great uh, observed this comet in the sky when she was a young girl and she was traveling to Russia to get married at the time, uh, that Charles Messier, for people in a, into astronomy, he was 13 years old at the time, and he saw it, and that inspired him at the time. So he's known as Messier numbers, and of course, he, of course, he discovered many comets later on, so this, of course, probably affected the rest of his life. So, hey, inspiration, 1744. Let that be an inspirational number to you. There were some other things that happened that year. Evidently, The Female Spectator was founded by Eliza Haywood in England, the first periodical written for women by a woman. So there you go. Um, we had rules for golf written up <laughs> at Leith. Uh, for the first golf competition. So, you know, lots of interesting things going on in 1744. So let me thank the donors. I did thank on Giving Tuesday itself on Twitter, but you know, not everybody's on Twitter. And if you're listening to this, so I'm going to go down the list. I did the fundraiser on Facebook and of course with Movember, uh, its own website itself. So let me start with the Facebook donors. And for obvious reasons, this is where my, you know, family members came through. So thanks to my mom. Hey, Alice Campbell, my mom. And my sister, Amy. Hey, Amy, thanks for donating. And then, St then Stuart's own cousin, Meredith Kester. Thanks, Meredith. Then I have my friends. So we've got Daniel Dunkelberger. We've got Dan Slazer and Sharon Fluitt. So these are my Facebook donors. So I do put up and use the little Facebook fundraiser for people who like to do it that way. 
Now, of course, I have put up the links to the Movember page itself. I did it on LinkedIn and I got a lot of my actuarial buddies uh, donating that way. So thanks to Troy Holm and Linda Lankowski and Mark Winston, of course. Mark is my friend outside of actuarial circles as well. We used to be colleagues at TIAA, but have been friends even since I left. Thanks, Mark. I also have Eileen Corelli, Dom LaBelle, uh, Jack Muller, who is one of my colleagues at Conning. Thanks, Jack. Um, some of these people, of course, have been multiple donors over multiple years. I've seen these names before. Thanks, Jason Colby, John Honos. We've got Ward Seert and Chris Cox. Thanks, Gordon McGregor and Jeff Piaget, who I know from other places online. We haven't met in person, but I see you online all the time. Um, I also have an anonymous donor. Thank you. I appreciate you guys too. And because of anonymous donor, I also got a little top up from Movember's partners who gave me some extra on Giving Tuesday itself. Then some more online buddies. We've got EJ McMahon, who I know through the Empire Center. So one of those online think tanks that I know from public finance circles, and then my big old funny actuarial buddy, John Lee from across the pond. That should, if you include myself, because of course I do donate donate to my own fundraiser, uh, 23 donors in total. And that's the most I've ever had. So in 2023, I had 23 donors. And I believe in 2021, I had 21 donors. Uh, I don't know. Is this some kind of trend. So I thank everybody who uh, donated to my fundraiser this year. And yeah, it's what's really kind of cool. I've been doing this since 2017. And one of the things through the um, Movember Foundation, you know, um, you know, mine, I'm obviously not one of the biggest fundraisers there. You know, there are people who get together, you know, they're on Wall Street and, you know, they get groups together and they get some big donors and this, that and the other. And they do the, well, obviously I can't do the mustache growing, but there's also people who do fitness challenges. And I've, you know, I kind of try to log <laughs> and I don't run, I walk. Um, for a while, but well, but then I kind of crap out. The way I do it, and this is where I'm going to go with the encouragement, of course, is, you know, you do what you can with the skills, the talents, you know, the resources you have. And that's the idea. Spreading the love with what you have, the gifts that you have been given. And of course, what's my gift? Well, I like numbers and I like explaining. Obviously, I like running my mouth so I can do that. Um, and what I do during Movember, of course, is connect to their particular themes with regards to prostate cancer. Obviously, I have a personal connection with Stuart, but even if I didn't, I was donating to Movember before Stuart's diagnosis. I have a lot of male friends from my very nerdy background and my preferences, um, I have a lot of men friends and a lot of them had done Movember before 2017 and I was donating to their campaigns, uh, but I also was interested in looking at the prostate cancer mortality trends even so before. 
um, especially compared against breast cancer, both breast cancer and prostate cancer after lung cancer. So you might find this interesting. So lung cancer is the top cancer for both men and women with regards to mortality. But then breast cancer and prostate cancer come very soon after that. Um, you know, breast cancer for women and uh, prostate cancer for men. And they have had different trajectories in mortality. However, kind of the research and the survival rates and all of that, uh, once you've been diagnosed, and I haven't actually gone into that, it's a lot easier. I'm sorry to, sorry to say, just the way the data are compiled, it's a lot easier for me to get into the data of just looking at the death rates, not uh, conditioned on when you were diagnosed. There are research sets, data sets, that are survival rates based on, you know, time of diagnosis. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I will mention this again. In 2017, I made the mistake of looking at the survival rates for Stuart's diagnosis when he was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer. That is, it had gotten into his bones and throughout his body at the time of diagnosis. The research paper I had looked at was a five-year survival rate of 2%. Now, just wait a moment. Yes, he's well beyond the five-year survival rate at this point, but also the the research paper I had looked at, even though it wasn't that old, it was based on data that was, I would say, like 20 years, years old at that point. And this is one of the issues with trying to look at these survival studies. And I'm often having an issue when I'm looking at mortality experience studies, is I have to think about how old the data are and how rapidly that experience might change. For certain causes of death, it doesn't necessarily change rapidly. But for cancer, especially when it is conditioned on diagnosis and treatment, it actually has, for very specific cancers, has changed very rapidly. Advanced prostate cancer and advanced breast cancer, it has changed quite a bit. And so Stuart's diagnosis is one that for some diagnoses has changed from, oh yeah, the one-year survival rate is 50-50, and that was the same research paper, and the five-year is 2%, um, to, oh, we have switched to, this is being treated, it's an incurable cancer, but it is being being treated as a chronic condition, which is the situation Stuart is in right now. That is my connection to prostate cancer. I have the personal connection that I can talk about, but I also have the experience with regards to mortality statistics, how it's interpreted, and being able to show the, this is the work that is being done. On the Movember side, though, no, it's not a direct relationship to what is going on with Stuart. His, uh, you know, his cancer and the treatment and all of the work that went into that, you know, most of that happened decades ago. Um, some of it is occurring right now, but it's a pipeline. And you could say, well, this is kind of giving back, but it is also about helping people right now and encouraging people to, uh, you know, get screened, encouraging men to get screened for their most common cancers. And I will be coming to that in a moment. Um, so that, so that is part of, you know, my connection, why I do the Movember 
fundraising November every year since 2017. And I want to thank my donors this year. And I know a lot of people have been squeezed, uh, you know, definitely recently in, in the post pandemic years, there's been a lot of layoffs in my industry. I know in the insurance industry, this is actually part of my job that I keep track of the news. But even if I didn't, you know, I have a lot of actuarial and insurance industry friends, and I do see their personal news and other news going by. A lot of people have been squeezed. Um, and so a lot of people are going through rough times themselves. And I have not been able to donate as much. I have a kid going through college. And, uh, you know, Dermot is my son who's autistic is also getting older. And I have to consider, you know, what his long term uh, situation is going to be and all of those kinds of things. We all have our issues. So this is me now transforming to my next step, which is talking about Caritas and making the world a little better place. Um, yes, now I'm, I'm switching to the Hallmark and no, I'm not. And people know me. I'm not a sweet person. I am quite mean um, in many ways. Yes, I'm the one who's most likely to kick your ass, uh, you know, if I think you need it. That said, what I am trying to encourage is, you know, let us be a bit kinder <laughs> to the people around us and spreading the love. But I'm talking about a specific kind of love, and that is karitas. Uh, that is the Greek term for, you know, what we're, what I call charity, karitas, the word care, charity, those kind of words in English are coming from that. And it is a type of love when we talk about love in Christianity. And I'm Catholic and I do bring this up from time to time. This is willing the good for the other, you know, someone who's not you, a person who's not you. This is the point. So a lot of people focus on November and especially Giving Tuesday. That's about money. And what are we doing with our charity? We're trying to raise money to do good for other people. And we want to be effective about this. And no, I'm not going to be talking about effective altruism or whatever that is. That is not my area. That's, you know, I just mentioned I'm Catholic. Um, I am not trying to optimize anything. I'm just trying, I am trying to be effective, but it's not, I'm not doing any formulas or I want to make sure the effort's not wasted. But I also want to make sure I'm actually doing good for, and it's not imposing on people. I want to make sure it has a good effect and that I am willing good and not willing ill on people. What this is in contrast to, and, and I'm going to take some literary diversions for a moment because you know me, I like all sorts of literary stuff. So first I'm going to mention Dante. So I love the Commedia, but um, my favorite part, a lot of people like Inferno because, well, part of it, a lot of people kind of like the justice of it, of people who are real evildoers getting what they deserve. But what a lot of people don't realize about Inferno so some of it, people like, oh, Dante just put his political enemies in hell. And I used to be that dismissive as a teenager. 
but that's not true. He actually put some people he really liked and were on his side in hell, who were already dead, obviously. Yes, he put some of his enemies in hell, but he also put some in Purgatorio. And Purgatorio is my favorite part. One of the things people don't don't realize is Purgatorio is the part of the three parts of the Divine Comedy that's actually structured around the three the three, the seven deadly sins, not hell. Hell has a different kind of structure. I'm not going to go in that structure now. I wrote a paper on it once, uh, but the purgatorio is the one that's based on the deadly sins. And it starts with the most serious one, pride, and ends with the least serious one, lust. Um, so it starts at the heaviest. It's a mountain. Purgatorio is a mountain. So inferno, hell is a pit <laughs> and it's frozen in the center. And uh, hell, uh, sorry, purgatory, purgatorio, purgatory is a mountain. And the heaviest part, the hardest one is pride. My will be done, not God's will be done, is pride is at the bottom. And lust, which is, you know, about appetite, you know, and about urges. Well, that's, well, that's the least, you know, it's your body kind of doing it. So that's at the top and lightest and you get lighter and lighter as you get towards the top of the mountain. There's all sorts of math in there and cosmology. There's all sorts of cool stuff in Purgatorio. Well, Dante put a lot of his enemies actually in Purgatory as well. And the thing is about Purgatory, it's transitory. And if you're there, you're going to heaven eventually. So it's, it's kind of, interesting. There's a lot of people that Dante did not like that he put in purgatory. But it's also based around these different levels going from the most serious to the least serious of the deadly sins. And while pride, which is against God, is the most serious, the one that Dante considered the most destructive of the sins was invidia or envy, which is the one that goes against caritas or love. So Invidia, envy, is wishing ill against other people. You don't want them to do well. You don't want good for them. You want evil towards them. So you are envious of them. You, If good happens to them, you grumble. And if bad happens to them, you rejoice. That's envy. So caritas is the opposite of that that you feel bad when bad things happen to them, and if good things happen to them, you rejoice. So let's spread that around a little more. But other things is, are you really doing well for other people? Another literary character that I like is Mrs. Jellyby from Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Now, a lot of people complain about Dickens's characters and oh, you know, misogynist. Blah. Okay, I don't want to get into that crap because Mrs. Jellyby is just one of many of a type of character in Bleak House. And I would say it's his best novel, by the way. And I've read all of his completed novels. I need to be specific about that. Bleak House is not my favorite of his. Of his, uh, Our mutual friend is, I would say, my number one, and then Martin Chuzzlebit is my number two, but I would never, <laughs> I would never recommend anyone start out with those two. Uh, but Bleak House is one that maybe you would want to start out with. It is a little, it's one of his uh, typical novels, um, and I would say it's his best. Um, but Mrs. Jellyby is of a circle of people, of a certain social group, 
in this particular novel who run various charities, various, let me be specific, Christian charities in this novel. And in particular, so Mrs. Jellyby has a household basically that is just falling apart. And her own charity is with regards to a sub-Saharan tribe, the Boreobulaga, who are, of course, not Christian. And her particular mission, and she's never been to Africa, of course, but she wants to, and I'm not even, I, I'm not going to do this properly, but it's like, oh, let's get us, get them some woolen vests that we're going to have Christian verses put into them. Um, and, you know, we're going to send them money and Christianize them and this, that, and the other. And what's bizarre about this, of course, and, and it's actually, as most of Dickens's extreme characters like this, is he's making fun, fun of a very real person that he knew in Victorian society. And it wasn't just her. There were other, quote, charitable characters in this novel. There is a woman with her sons and her husband that she forces them to give, so she gives them their allowance and then forces the sons to donate their allowances to various causes that she tells them to send the money to. And of course, it's not charity. It's her money that she is, you know, designating to go to these various charities and then pretending her sons are choosing to spend the money, but that's not charity. Um, she might be giving the money and that's okay, but telling her sons, oh, this is your money to choose to give to charity, but I am forcing you to give it. And of course, the sons are very envious. This is not, they are not feeling very charitable. And uh, Dickens, of course, of course, was surrounded by these people once he had money himself to donate. And he had tried to do his own charities and the whole point of this, I'm sorry to go down this, of course, uh, there's a little side note with regards to the Boreobula Ga uh, in the book, if I remember correctly, like a neighboring tribe comes in and enslaves them all, something like that, that the money comes in and it causes um, the uh, tribe that Mrs. Jellyby was supposedly trying to help and actually causes them to be a target of surrounding tribes and then makes their lot worse off than they were to begin with. Um, but at the same time in the book, her own household is completely a chaos and fallen apart. And not only that, in London itself, you see real, you know, real abject poverty of, of, of the Victorian era. We see the itinerant uh, brick workers who are, you know, abusive drunkards, but part of it is from their own poverty. There were some deep depressions in the 19th century uh, during, you know, the whole industrialization of England that there was a big boom and bust cycle. And some of that came from the banks themselves. It's not just a matter of lack of regulation, a lot of people would say, but some of it was the whole um, aspect of the financial system of uh, the banks were kind of rickety themselves. And that took a while to get on a more sound footing. 
um, and that caused a lot of problems. In any case, uh, so in Bleak House, you see it's it's almost like the Gilded Age, uh, kind of rich and poor, poor that you're seeing, but also ineffective charity of these various Christian societies where they're do, focusing their charity on people who are far away that they know nothing about, and they can't be effective at all. And they might actually make these people's lives worse that who are in Africa, while they are completely blind, or in some of the cases when they do come up against the very poor uh, sweeping boy, Joe, who, and that's his only name, and he ultimately dies of exposure, I would say, and a bad illness. And I can't remember if it's smallpox or diphtheria or what disease ultimately it with exposure uh, finally kills him. Um, they do get him into a children's hospital towards the end, but I mean, the ravages are already there, uh, but it's ineffective, ineffective charity. Um, to the people who are living right next to them um, and then being totally ineffective in their own household. Some people were saying, well, oh, you're saying women shouldn't have causes. Well, that wasn't the point because she had Mrs. Jellyby as a middle-class woman um, and these other middle-class women had servants. The issue was that they weren't, you were supposed to provide oversight for these servants so that you would run the household. The main character of Bleak House is Esther Summerson, who is a bastard child, and she was brought up to have the skills to run a household, whether as a wife or as a housekeeper or a governess or whatever. She was in a servant position, but it is to serve. And sometimes it's like they also serve from Milton's on his blindness, blindness. They also serve who stand and wait. Um, sometimes it's to observe what is needed. And that is caritas, wishing the good for the other. It's not, I'm sorry, it's not merely enough. Everyone who's listening to this, I'm sorry, if you can stand my voice, <laughs> if you can stand my voice, if you can stand my words, if you can stand what I write about and look at my graphs, you have skills. You may not realize that. Well, I don't know. You might not know what I know. That's not the point. You can read. You're human. You understand a certain amount of things. You can listen. You can observe, you can pay attention to other people around you. And the people you are most likely to be able to understand are the people you see every day if you just stand and wait and listen and observe. So this is my last bit is to, in to encourage you. This is encourage. And as you can see, I like words. So caritas. That's care, charity, wishing the good of the other. Encouragement. This is one of those words we got from the French. Oh, the French are good for something. Food and language. Um, no, I'm, I'm joking. Yes, we, yes, ah, Rochambeau. And yes, we, Lafayette, you know, let's salute. Um, no, I, I don't have anything really against the French. The French are fine. Um, but encouragement, courage, 
what is at the heart of this word, curl. I, and I'm sorry, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I took French. Le cœur or la, I think it's le. I think it's masculine. Le cœur, the heart from French. So courage, it's about the heart. To encourage is to hearten. And it's about the heart. Uh, in my Magnificat from yesterday's morning prayer, be strong, let your heart take courage. So let your heart take heart. All who hope in the Lord. So Psalm from Psalm 31. I want to encourage everybody. A lot of people don't think about like, well, what can I do? Yes, I ask for donations. That bit is over. You know, if you have money and this is, I do look around. The Movember is not the only thing I donate to. I have a lot of educational charities that I support, such as BEAM, which is the Bridge to Enter Advanced Mathematics. Part of that is because Dan Zahara Paul, who founded BEAM, is one of my ex-students from math camp, but also he was a former colleague at math camp. I know all the work he's put into BEAM, and I see what he's doing. I agree with his mission, and I know uh, you know, I agree with his goals and I know he knows the kind of work it requires to achieve those goals. So I think he is going to be effective in approaching those goals. Similarly, I donate to my old high school, the North Carolina School of Science and Math. I just did that on Giving Tuesday in memory of, um, I'm sorry, in honor of my old uh, resident advisor, Marlene, Marlene uh, who's kind of a substitute mom, especially after my dad died when I was 16 and, and you know, I was still at high school. And it's a boarding school. Um, so yes, it's a public school, but, um, you know, a lot of money is needed to help support some of the social activities for the students on campus. And a lot of the students who go to NCSSM were not coming from, you know, some of the upper middle class background like I was coming from. It helps to have money for the activities that they want to do. One of the great things about NCSSM when I was there was that um, we didn't have to pay to be there. Yes, it did help to have some extra money. And um, actually, I really didn't have it when my dad died um, and not much before. But, um, you know, those it, those who did have extra money or just have, or just to have money for some activities is very helpful to have something of a social life there and being able to do things and have vans to go places and that kind of thing. The state does pay for a lot of what the school does, but doesn't pay for everything. So it's nice to have alumni come in and pay for some of the things for the school. So I do that. And I also will go to my undergraduate institution, North Carolina State University, uh, for my specific department. I was in math and physics and go look for scholarships to pay for those because, you know, I had alumni paying uh, for my scholarships. I didn't have any money saved up for college for me. So why not pay back? So that's money. That's one thing people can do. You can work a job and then you can donate to those who have 
uh, goals aligned with yours. So that's one thing. But most of us do have skill skills where we can do things and where you can start is your local community. Uh, obviously local schools and churches, but even beyond that, what a lot of people don't know is you might just ask around, ask neighbors. Sometimes it's just little stuff. The funniest thing I saw on Twitter, this was one of my parish priests. We have three parish priests, our pastor and then the two, whatever, associate uh, priests that we have at our church. And our youngest priest was saying that an old lady came up to him after church with a TV remote control. And just to ask him to help her change the batteries. Her, I guess her hands were so arthritic, she couldn't open the little battery compartment in the back. She didn't have anybody to help her with such a small task. And that's one of the issues with a lot of the older people in the community is a lot of people, and this is one of the things I wonder about looking at working at mortality statistics, is I wonder about some of the older people if they're losing some of their social network support um, in terms of rides to go places, um, like doctor's appointments even, and that it gets more difficult, especially with gas prices increasing. Uh, One of the things, I'm sorry to say, you know, a lot of the older people really, really shouldn't be driving. And no, we don't have the self-driving cars yet. And it gets to be very expensive to get, you know, an Uber or some of these other things. One thing you can see is, is there some kind of local, you know, drive senior around seniors around to their errands? Now, you may be someone who works during the day, And so you can only do this on the weekends. Um, Another thing, so like with my church, I go visit nursing homes with my church. A lot of people, I'm sorry, yes, a lot of churches do provide, provide some of these things. These were just some ideas. And then let me give you two lists. These come from the Catholics, but you don't have to be Catholic to do any of these. We have what are called the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy. So corporal works of mercy, feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned or ransom the captive and bury the dead. Uh, There are societies like actually there are burial societies. And again, these are not necessarily, you know, holy Christian. These are corporal works of mercy, meaning the body. So these are physical things that you can do. There's nothing specifically Christian about this. Anybody can do this. Feed the hungry. Um, So yes, some of these are items you can do with money, but you can also physically do this. Visit the sick. This is like, as I say, visiting nursing homes. Some of this There are groups that already organize these, but also, you know, call up nursing homes or hospitals or that kind of thing. Do they have organizations where um, it is organized so that you can do these kinds of activities? Children's hospitals. um, Sometimes I did this like this, like there were therapy dogs that came to visit uh, places. Maybe you have a pet or something that is appropriate to visit sick children. Who knows? So that's the corporal works of mercy. But maybe you're like me. I have chronic pain and I have, you know, a lot of limitations on traveling and other things. So here are the spiritual works of mercy. So these are, yeah, a little more abstract. So let me just go uh, down these and I'll explain. Instruct the ignorant 
counsel the doubtful, admonish sinners, bear patiently those who wrong us, forgive offenses, comfort the afflicted, and pray for the living and the dead. So those are a little more explicitly religious, but some of these, some other ones that I just want to talk about that are not necessarily, I mean, these could be corporal or spiritual, however you want to say. One, th- one thing that I like to do that I picked up from my mom um, when I was younger, uh, when I was a little kid, she had a whole drawer full of greeting cards and she would just send greeting cards to people almost randomly. And that's what I do now. I send postcards more often than greeting cards because I know people might feel like they have to send me a card back if I send them a greeting card. No, if you are on my mailing list, you do not have to write back to me. So this is an open invitation to anybody who hears this. You can email me, marypat.campbell at gmail.com. And, you know, I have a P.O. box myself. I don't care if it's a Dropbox, I mean, um, like a private mailbox or P.O. box. I have a P.O. box myself that um, I get my mail at. If you email me with a mailing address, you can get on my mail list. I don't promise any per- any particular schedule, um, but I do keep a spreadsheet and people will tell you they randomly get cards for me. It's often postcards. You might not be able to read my handwriting. <laughs> um, so that'll be part of the um, challenge, but I, they will be interesting postcards. Uh, one set of postcards I sent out was from a friend who found a cache of postcards that his, I think it's either was his father or his grandfather that had never sent, who had been to Europe. And these postcards were over 100 years old uh, from Europe. Some of them were from Switzerland, from Rome um, that I sent. Uh, the, uh, those were really cool. Uh, some were from Mexico. Um, they were really neat. Uh, some were from Florida, actually. Um, so I sent those out. And what's hilarious, of course, is I've never, oh, I've been to Florida, but I had never been to Rome or Switzerland um, sending out these, post- out these postcards. So that was actually kind of fun. Um, but, you know, this is, just kind of spreading the love spirit, spreading the caritas. That's one way you can spread the joy. So like, even if you just got a little bit of joy, just my encouragement to everybody out there is there are many ways to do good. And, you know, they also serve who stand and wait. Just, you can start at home. You can start in your community. Just start, start small send a postcard, you know, pick up the phone, call, call your mom or call your sibling or call your cousin, whoever it happens to be. Just smile at somebody, say, Hey, you know, have a good time. Um, go out in the sunlight or not pray for somebody. Um, there's all sorts of things that one can do to lighten the world a little more. And that is my encouragement to spread the caritas and thanks to everybody who has put up with listening to me through this episode. So that has been stump death and taxes. I hope you had a good a good November and here's to a happy December for 2023.